Everybody, welcome to another edition of the IAIB Spotlight. I'm Andrew Zarian, and this week I have a very special guest, someone that a lot of you have requested uh, for months and months and possibly almost two years I've been getting this request to have this man in on the show. Uh, I'm joined by Tom Merritt. How you doing, Tom? Good. I, I just kept resisting and resisting. You know, finally, <laughs> they broke me down. No, I, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And, Absolutely. And happy people care. Absolutely. Um, I've Out of everybody that we've interviewed, the one thing that we get every week is, hey, when are you getting Tom Merritt in? When are you getting... And I know you've had a crazy couple months, so I think we tried to schedule this about two months ago, and then we delayed it, and then finally... Uh, we're here, and we're going to talk about internet broadcasting and, and pretty much your career because you started out in traditional broadcasting. Yeah, actually, uh, I started out in 1986 in radio as a 16-year-old uh, doing country music at, by day and metal at night. Oh, that's hysterical. So total opposite ends. But you went to school for journalism, right? Not broadcasting, not, not communications. Well, I went. Uh, yeah, I went. I got a, a degree in journalism from the University of Illinois. Now I started in the print track, so my my introductory classes were all about print journalism. But I finished in the broadcast track. So at the University of Illinois, they just give you a journalism degree. They don't differentiate broadcast versus print, but you can decide internally which track you're you're going to follow. When you were doing the the radio station at sixteen, did you go into it as well? This is just a job, and I think it's pretty cool. Or hey, this is something I want to do. Oh, it was definitely something I wanted to do. I, I was a, uh, you know, I wanted to get a job because I wanted to have some money to spend. And that's my parents were like, well, if you want money to spend, go get, go get a job. The station had just opened up in 1985. And my mom was an aerobics instructor. This is such an 80s story. And the uh, secretary slash wife of the owner uh, at the radio station was in her class. And so she asked if they needed any help. And they said, yeah, we can use some help on the weekend. So I started by going in and uh, playing the American Country Countdown, which was delivered on albums. Uh, and it was like, you know, it was American Top 40 for country. And so I would just sit there and, and play those and play the commercials and the breaks and, and all of that. And then eventually I got to be able to, to talk a little bit on air some more and, and do some shows and stuff like that. It was, but it was something I definitely wanted to do. It was really fun. Did you have like an on-air name or did you go by Tom Merritt? Yeah, I went by Tom Merritt. Okay. I did, I, and go by crazy Tom Merritt. Have, I did, like, you know, Tom, I did have man Merritt. <laughs> I did have some like embarrassing outro thing that I I decided I would do at the end of my two hour shift because uh, I, I worked six to eight p.m. Uh, so I could come in after school at, like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday, and even even so, I I created this whole like good long goodbye to people who'd been listening like anyone cared. But I mean, that's such a that's such an amazing story because. That's not a possibility now for a 16-year-old kid to walk into a radio station and, or, or you know, have their mother you know, hook up with, I guess, the program director or the owner's wife and get a, get a job on the air. That, that's almost impossible at this point. I don't know. I mean, I, I think it would still be possible at WGEL in Greenville because, you know, it's a town of, well, it's bigger now. It's probably closer to 10,000 than 5,000. It, but it's still a 3,000-watt station. You know, it's, they, they're looking for, for people who who the can fill in gaps here and there. So it might happen. But honestly, I would tell people that's really not what I would go after. If you're wanting to do this kind of thing, 
I would just go to the internet and start doing it now. That was, that was not an option for me at the time. Uh, you know, I used to make my own cassettes, but they didn't go anywhere. And I, I bought the little AM broadcaster kit from Radio Shack, but that was, you know, five watts and my neighbors could barely get it. Not that they would. So now you, you have a worldwide audience at your beck and call. Uh, you may not be very good when you start, but the earlier you start and the more you do it, the better you get. I tell people all the time, the best thing you could do is do a show and have nobody watch in, in the beginning. Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. If, if you're not you're not used to talking on the air, start doing it. Start doing a podcast for nobody. I mean, don't even release it uh, until you're comfortable being on the air. And then after that, you know, you start doing it and you start building an audience. But for you, you were on the air. You were at 16. You were, uh, you know, running a radio show, which is unbelievable uh, for most people. How, where do you go from there? How do you uh, continue that? Well, I, what I did is I, I went, went to college, uh, and at first, at the University of Illinois, they don't let you into the journalism program until your junior year. So the first couple of years, I thought I'd be pre-law. I was major in economics. I was a major in history. Uh, I ended up minoring in Russian and philosophy just because I built up all of this coursework that I was interested in. But I worked at the radio station at the University of Illinois, too. They, they have an interesting situation where they have a private radio station that's not part of the university that is student-run. It was spun out of the university in the 60s and is run by a nonprofit called the Illini Media Company. They also operate the daily paper, the Daily Illini. And so I started, I started working there because I had experience working in radio and eventually worked my way up to be the program director of that for a couple of years uh, before I graduated. Did you like the behind-the-scenes stuff more? Did you like being on air? Was that what you wanted to do? I liked both. I really enjoyed being program director and, and working with the team to you know, select the music and figure out rotations and what worked and what didn't. We were in a ratings battle with the top 40 station for, for number one in the city. And then my second year, uh, another station switched formats to classic rock. We were album-oriented rock, so uh, we had to fend them off. That was really fun. I mean, it was, it was nerve-wracking, but it, I, I learned a ton of stuff doing that. But I also enjoyed being on the air. My favorite moment of that entire stretch was being at the end of my afternoon drive shift when the Gulf War broke out and having the news guy come in, rip and read, you know, off the UPI machine. Hey, you know, the shots fired reports are are in and, and we just, you know, shifted into news coverage on a rock station. We kept playing a little bit of music, but we kept breaking back in with this happening, that happening, watching CNN, watching the wires. That was that was a rush. That was, you know, and it felt like you were covering history because you were. I mean, was that like a pivotal moment for you as, you know, when you're broadcasting Korea that, you know, you experienced that. And like for me, I've had some of those moments where that has been the moment that I'll remember and I'll say, OK, well, you know what? This is why I do this. This is one of the reasons why I continue doing this like that. That rush, that feeling that you get is something that continues and, and kind of pushes you on. Sure. And definitely at that time, that was a pivotal moment for me. It, it, it changed my views of the world. It changed my views of politics. And that feeling of going from being on the air and being the person who said, we now go to the newsroom when that you know, historic moment happened and then being the person behind the scenes helping to direct you know, how much our coverage would be, what we'd cover with the news director, both of those sides of it were – amazing and i wanted to do it more uh, so after that i mean years went by obviously i'm, I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit because there's so much i want to ask you but you, you you started working at tech tv in 90 in 99 
Um, yeah, skip over the part where I spent a lot of time in bars in Austin. That's oh. that's good. <laughs> is that is that what you did? Because I, I spent a lot of bars in Bayside, so we could bond. Over I, that. Yeah, I, got, I went to grad school at the uh, University of Texas at Austin. I didn't I didn't finish. I uh, I worked at a bookstore. I did a pirate radio station. I just kicked around trying a bunch of different stuff, and that's when I started my website. Started learning HTML, taught myself how to code a little bit. And, and started doing the web. And that leads you right up to me getting a job at ZDTV because I had been running my own website. I had found people to write for it. I had a schedule. I edited them. I published once a week. So when I interviewed at ZDTV.com with Regina Preciado and said, hey, you know, I, I'm, I would like this job as an associate producer on your website – I do all of the things you describe as the job duties already for nothing. So, you know, I know how to do this job cheaply and I know how to do it well. She believed me. She, you know, she looked at the website. She's like, yeah, okay, I'll give you a shot. Were you a tech guy as a kid or is that something that you grew into? Yeah, I was, a, I was definitely a tech guy as a kid. I always I would grab my dad's calculator and play with it. Uh, I don't know if I have it right to hand, but it was a TI-35 uh, and and. And then I wanted a computer desperately. I've told the story a million times uh, about going to the store and wanting to buy an Atari 2600 with my allowance money that I'd saved up. And my dad saying, you can either buy that or you can get an extra $100 from me and buy the TI-99 for a computer. And I went with the computer and that was it. You know, I was, I was into computers from then on. Yeah, uh, for me, my, my first computer was a Tandy. Nice. Couple yeah, years after TRS, TRS eighty or no? Or I later? had the uh, later. the later one, the twenty one hundred. Okay, it, was, yeah. it didn't have Windows. I mean, it was running Deskmate. Uh huh. Oh that, yeah, that Deskmate abomination. Was, you know, I still got a PC Computing magazine somewhere around here. Uh, prop, I'm sorry, Popular Computing magazine that compares all the windowing operating <laughs> systems. Didn't like that Microsoft one. Wasn't very imaginatively named, but DeskView actually was uh, was was pretty highly recommended. If oh I recall. God, I remember people loved it, and then yeah. they realized what a what a piece of junk it was. <laughs> <laughs> Once Windows started, you know, Windows three point one came out, you're like, wow, I can't believe yeah. these two things are happening at the same time. Yeah, my first my my first windowing operating system was Windows Windows two eighty six for an IBM PS two, and. It was janky. I remember going to the lab in my freshman year in college and working on a Mac and realizing, oh, this is what the windowing operating system is supposed to work like. I had this heavily modded – what IBM would do is they'd sell you Windows 286, but they would add all these add-ons to make it work more like a Mac, like adding colors and, and more, uh, more uh, folders options and, and stuff like that. And it was just janky. It I it gives me nightmares. I still have mine. It's sitting in my attic somewhere. I'm, I'm, I, I have every, mine. It's right over. Yeah, it's right over there in the closet. Every week I get asked to like start running it on the show, uh, on the tech show that we do here, and I just keep forgetting to bring it down. But I think I'm going to do it this week. It's, let's see what I can didn't, do on it, that thing. It didn't have any uh, hard drive or anything in it, did it? Or did it? <sighs> I don't think solid so. State? I think it was a solid state. Yeah. Yeah, because then it might it, it probably will run for a lot longer. Because of solid state, yeah. yeah. I, it has a modem. I mean, I, I used to connect to Prodigy, so nice. let's see what I can do with it. Dial up into Prodigy. Uh, only so, thing I don't, I, the only thing I don't forgive my dad for is I really, really wanted that, uh, that Commodore modem that you set the, the, the phone down in the cradle yeah, yeah, yeah. on, and he wouldn't get it for me. He's like, no, we're not running up the phone bill. Well, why, why do you want to connect to that thing? Who cares? Yeah. Who cares what other exactly. people are doing? So, I mean, that, that shows that you had the interest in technology. Uh, you started writing about it. You went to Tech TV. Uh, 
at that point, were you still thinking, well, I'm going to be an on-air talent. I'm going to start hosting a show. Was that still going on or were you just writing at that point? That's what you wanted to do. Yeah, I was way behind the scenes. Uh, when I started at ZDTV, I, I wanted to do the radio. In fact, I did ZDTV radio and Tech TV radio pretty consistently throughout my time there because they were always looking for people to, to kind of chip in and help out. They didn't have enough budget to have a permanent staff of more than one. Uh, so Erica Hill was their host at first and then Ken Ray later on. But I was always in there helping out, doing some extra work uh, just because I enjoyed doing it. Other than that, I wasn't on that much. It was, there was definitely a bias against having staff on because it was so easy. So they would do it. They would have staff on. And anybody who watched the screensavers know they had staff on all the time. But they tried to make sure that they didn't encourage it. They didn't make it. They didn't want it to sound like, oh, well, anybody could just be on the show. Uh, and so I was more interested in making the website really good. Because what happened over time is the person who hired me left within three months and I took her job. And then layoffs started happening and I'd get promotions uh, as they would get rid of people. They'd realize, well, now, now we need somebody to run all of these things. And eventually I ended up being the executive producer of techtv.com. And so I was 100% focused on how do we make the best companion web content to go along with this television network because that's the power of this network is its users, is the people on the netcam network, the people in the chat room, uh, the people sending us email. And let, so let's make a really good website for them. So what, I, I, I got to ask this question on, uh, on, on Twitter uh, yesterday when I posted that you were coming on. Somebody wanted to know, and, and I kind of have the same question too, what made Tech TV so memorable for so many people that, you know, years, 10 years after its you know, end, people are still talking about Tech TV and it's kind of engraved in this tech audience on the internet you know people that watch my show people that watch your show uh people that watch twit that the tech tv thing is still there for them what do you think made it so special for the audience i think it was the fact that we included the audience so directly and we were talking about something that they cared about a lot that no one else was talking about. I mean, it was, it was, it was a special time in technology, that dot-com boom. Lots to make fun of in it, for sure. But I don't think we'll see that kind of time again anytime soon because everything was new. Uh, the internet was less than 10 years old, and we didn't know what its possibilities were, so its possibilities were endless. And everybody was playing with it and trying to figure it out, and suddenly here comes this network that says we're going we're gonna to be entirely about all of these things you care about. And one of the magical things about the internet was I can find other people that are interested in the same things as me, and I never could before. And now there was this network saying, and here's more of us, and we're going to help bring more of you together in a place. So I think that's probably one of the big things that made it so compelling at the time. And then over time, we always tend to be nostalgic and color things more pleasant than they were. I, I remember working at Tech TV and people complained all the time about, you know, bosses and stupid decisions and this and that. Uh, and then now, any, talk to any Tech TV former employees, they always wax, oh, it was such a, so great, I miss it, you know, and, and it's true. I, I, both things are true. There were, there were stupid things happening at the time, but at the same time, I've never worked anywhere like it since. Uh, after that, uh, you went to CNET, Obviously, and you had you were doing Buzz Out Loud with Molly Wood at that point. Before we talk about that show and, and how that show gained popularity, at that point when you started doing it, what was your 
vision of what broadcasting on the internet could be because my first experience with a online broadcast was iata a lot of people don't even remember iata uh they were a internet broadcasting i guess station they had mm-hmm. extreme funding i mean millions and millions of dollars had gone into it uh i think bob meyerowitz was the main guy funding it and it just went away due to you know the expense of having you know an internet radio station they tried to do video in 99 which uh, didn't work too well. At that point, what was your vision of it? Did you foresee it becoming, in the short time, I mean, in 10 years, did you foresee it becoming, uh, you know, a competitor to mainstream television? Yeah, actually, I I did. And I thought it would probably take 10 years or more. Uh, and I don't think it's quite there yet. But one of the things I, I remember struggling with at Tech TV was, the website was really, and maybe I feel this way because I worked on the website, but I felt like the website was really where the action was because we were there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We had the audience all the time. We could interact with them whenever we wanted. Things were much more flexible and much easier to do. It took a crew of, of dozens to put on a television show. Uh, for the ra- internet radio station, you just had a couple people and you flip a switch. And so... Th- I was like, this is where this is the this is where things are going to be. It's it's much more efficient. It's much more direct, and you can provide a lot more choice. So I remember when RSS came along, jumping on that, saying, "Yes, let's deliver our, our articles from TechTV.com through RSS. Give people more choices. Give people more ways to consume the content they want. That's where it's going to be." Then I end up going to CNET, where they act. I actually end up working on the video. I go from working on a website at a television network, which is the secondary product, to working on video at a website, which is the secondary product. Uh, but it, but it was fun in both cases because you're you're saying this is this is the great growth area this is the place yeah. where we can try new things and see what works so you, you started doing video How, what were you were you doing um the video just on ge- in general for the website for the reviews and stuff what were you doing exactly with on the video side yeah when when i started working at cnet my job originally was homepage editor uh and i had a bunch of other responsibilities I regarding- job right now it is at now Ayaz's job. It was a, it was a bigger department back then, sadly, uh, but yeah, it's, it's the same job Ayaz has. Uh, and it was it was me, Molly Wood, Susie Brandon, and Tim Moynihan over not only the homepage but a couple other of the sub uh, section pages, as well as any how to contents, any special packages. There was a bunch of things kind of grouped together that didn't fit neatly into the reviews beat. And one of the things they had just started doing was review videos. So they would have the editors sit down and, and talk about the product that they were reviewing. And they wanted to do more video. So, you know, trying not to make it too long of a story, Molly Wood was writing The Daily Buzz, which was on the front page. It was a little quick, like, here are other things happening on the internet sort of thing. And she was writing a column called The Buzz Report, which was kind of taking that trends idea and expanding on it. And so when they said, let's do video, I said, well, why don't you have Molly do a video version of her column? Uh, and I think by that time, she had, she had moved the column into the Anchor Desk uh, newsletter, but that's a little beside the point. But they're like, yeah, let, let's try that. So she was the first non-reviews video. And then it w- when it went from there was what I was pushing for podcasting as, as well as a few other people. And they said, well, what if we have Molly do an audio podcast uh, but you'll need somebody else. Tom, you and Molly seem to have a good rapport. Why don't you guys do an audio version? That's how Buzz Out Loud became Buzz Out Loud because it was the Buzz Report on audio. On audio. And then, uh, and then we went from there and I said, look, 
I really want to do video. I want to do more video. So we, we started to come up with franchises and they created the CNET TV department and I was able to transfer into that. Actually, that's how the front door position became a one person instead of part of a four person team at that point. So I came up with top five. Uh, I was doing a, uh, a sponsored video called Road Warrior, which was just talking about mobile devices for a while. Uh, and, and then we just essentially were trying to come up with good video products that could be sold that would serve the audience and, and, and get views. At, at, at CNET, I know that CNET has done – it's been it's pretty much run separately, right, from CBS Interactive. But it is CBS Interactive. Um, did it feel – like you were working for a CBS or did was it, you know, still very controlled by CNET and it was it felt smaller than it should? Well, it's funny. When I when I started at CNET, it was CNET Networks. It hadn't been bought by CBS yet. Uh, and we were always treated as old media, right? Because what was new then was Gizmodo and Engadget, yeah. uh, TechCrunch, and we were the old people on the block. And then we get by, bought by an even older group <laughs> of people on the yeah. block. And so, yeah, no, CNET was CBS Interactive. When, when CBS bought us, they had obviously CBS.com, CBSNews.com, Last.fm, a few other properties. But they were buying CNET Networks in order to make that the backbone of CBS Interactive. So we became the flagship of the non-CBS part of CBS Interactive. And yet they didn't really change anything. And I, I, I give CBS a lot of credit for that. When, when Comcast came in and bought Tech TV, they, they did not buy it for the content and they changed everything. When CBS bought CNET Networks, they bought it for the content, for the expertise. And at first, they didn't touch anything. As far as I can tell, they really haven't done much of anything to CNET with the you know, special exempt, exempt, exemption for what they did at CES with the Best of CES Awards. Other than that, They've left it alone. They haven't tried to push it one way or another. There have been a lot of attempts to integrate it with, with local television, with network television, to try to provide cross-reporting and this and that. I don't know if any of those have gotten real traction, but they've never come in and said, well, we want to change CNET to be this way or that way. I have a couple friends on the CBS side of things, and a lot of them have been astonished at the fact that C- CNET works right cbs interactive version of cnet with their content delivery always works but whenever CNET, a cbs has attempted to kind of replicate let's say a buzz out loud for example it doesn't really work too well and they always question well is it because cnet knows how to run it and they've kind of been left alone for the most part or is it just the content that's being delivered I, yeah, that's a great question. I, I would suspect it's the same answer if you can answer, well, why do tech publications continue to thrive on the Internet uh, while newspapers, general newspapers, seem to have trouble? And I don't know. If I knew the answer, I'd be out consulting, making you know hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, doing it. My, if if I you suspect, have the answer, Tom, please tell me. Yeah, right? Uh, I suspect it has to do with the endemic audience, right? If you're a technology publication, your audience is on the internet already. They're much more likely to be savvy and want to consume your content that way. If you're the Washington Post, a lot of your audience just wants to pick the paper up off the front stoop every morning. And, you know, getting them to the internet is a problem, which becomes a problem for circulation numbers, becomes a problem for advertising numbers, makes you want to put up a paywall, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I also think that Tech publications themselves, because they're populated by people who love technology, are much more agile. They're also newer, so they don't have a history of doing it this way that they can't pivot on. 
and, and somebody like the New York Times or the Washington Post, they have hundreds of years of history. So it's a lot harder for them to abandon certain ways of doing things. Yeah, I mean, when you're an institution, it's very difficult to break away from the old way of doing things. And, and I guess, I mean, even right now, Tom, with what you're doing, uh, which I, I want to get to because I'm so uh, amazed at the way that you have figured out a way to make some money from this. Uh, with with the Patreon campaign, there's so many questions I've been I've been asked to ask you. But uh, when it comes to broadcasting on the internet, I, I mean it's it's an easy thing. Like if something's not working for you, one two three, you could change it immediately. You could say, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. It's much harder for a major brand like a Wall Street Journal or a New York Times to say, okay, well this isn't working. What are we going to do? Yeah, a lot I of money's invested. I- I saw this an analog of this problem at CNET in 2004 when I started there, and I said I wanted to do podcasting. There was some resistance because they're like, man, do we really need to do that? What was the and first it, podcast you heard? The first podcast I heard? Yeah. Or you started listening. Was, was uh, there were two, uh, Coverville and uh, Drive Time, which was this guy in Boston who actually did a video podcast – way early and he would just set a camera on his on his dash as he drove to work each i remember day. that i remember yeah. that yeah and then uh obviously daily source code uh I, I i listened to very early jawbone radio i listened to very early um those those were those were the ones populating my creative nomad back in the day did you think there would be money that early on in in this business? I, you know, podcasting kind of became this offshoot of obviously radio, but was there any money at that point for a guy with a camera that you know just slaps it on their dash and just drives to work? Who knew, right? I mean, yeah. to me, the point wasn't how much money are we going to make on this. The point was what can this medium do? Let's start there. And I have always been a big believer that the companies that do it right make the products that people like and try to perfect them, and then figure out how to monetize off of that. Whenever you have monetization leading the products, you end up narrowing down what you do to a very small amount, uh, and, it, and it doesn't work. And, then when, and that, that makes you vulnerable to something big changing in your industry and blowing you away because you're not flexible anymore. So now let's talk about your uh, going over the twit. How was that transition for you from going from you know CNET, which – has been around, like you said, an old company to this startup, you know, that, that you're now part of. Yeah, I wanted the flexibility. That was the big thing that drove me to, to change jobs. At CNET, I had been doing some podcasts on my own because I really enjoyed podcasts. And CNET was moving away from podcasts. In fact, I had a couple meetings where it was suggested that maybe Buzz Out Loud should be canceled. And they were canceling other podcasts. And they were saying, we can't really sell podcasts. We view them as promotional vehicles now. And so I felt like, well, you know what? I I really think this is a direct medium. And even though the buzziness of it was wearing off at the time, I, I think there's something there. And I really enjoyed doing it. I, th- I think I want to continue to do it. CBS had a very good conflict of interest policy. It was a very, very sensible one. Uh, I couldn't make any competing content, but if I wanted to make non-competing content, I was allowed to do so and make money off it as long as I went through a conflict of interest resolution process with the lawyers. So I'd have, for every show I wanted to do, I'd have to write up what it was, why I was doing it, what I planned to do with it. The lawyers will look it over, make sure it didn't violate Sarbanes-Oxley or any of the other things, and then sign off on it. But that was so cumbersome that 
I realized, you know, I, I think I'd be better as a freelancer. So what I originally proposed to CNET was make me part-time. I'll continue to do a few shows, but then I'll have the freedom to do other shows that I want. Uh, then Leo offered, well, why don't you do shows for me and be full-time? And I, I told him right there at the beginning, I don't want to be exclusive. That's my only principle is that I want to be able to do lots of different things for lots of different networks. And he said, that's fine. I have no problem with that. And CNET was less fine with that. So what happened was originally I was going to leave, go to Twit, do shows for Leo. I was doing a show for uh, CNET and I was possibly going to do a show for Revision 3. We were, in, we were in talks and I was continuing to do Sword and Laser and a, and a couple of other independents. And then CNET at the last minute said, you know what, we, we don't, we don't want to have you do any freelance for us at all. And which I understood. They just wanted a clean break. So then I ended up doing top five for revision three for a while and doing other shows. And that was the beauty of it was here's somebody in a little cottage in Petaluma who I respect making great content, who wants me to come in and give me the opportunity to experiment and make great content. Uh, and I can continue to experiment on my own and make great content. So it was really attractive. I, I think with, with podcasting, with internet broadcasting, exclusivity is is a is a total negative um we we've been offered you know with, with gfq we've been offered like hey why don't you do it for us exclusively and as soon as i hear the word exclusive i don't want to do it um i want to be able to go and do whatever else i want i don't want to be tied down to just doing you know this for this company and and that's it i can't go and do another thing um and i think that's the beauty with podcasting uh, the fact that we really don't compete i, I don't think anybody's really competing if somebody's right. watching, you know, my show, uh, and you know, at times we cover uh, cutting the cord, and somebody's watching Cord Killers, we're not competing in any way. The, the right, it, it's large enough for someone to say, okay, well, I'm going to listen to Andrew, and then I'm going to listen to Tom, and then I'll listen to Brian. Uh, well, and th- it was actually very friendly when I started doing Tech News Today, and Molly was still doing Buzz Out Loud. And not not that we were totally like you know buddy buddy or anything. We weren't appearing on each other's shows, but. They were doing – they started taking their show in a direction that made sense for Molly and Rafe and, or later Molly and Brian. And I started taking a show that made more sense for me and Sarah and eventually I as uh, because I felt exactly that same way. Like there's lots of people out there interested in this kind of topic and there's room for different takes. Some people like a more serious take some people like a, a more relaxed take some people like a fun take uh and and the list goes on and on about what you can do so there's all manner of ways to approach this sort of thing not that there's an endless amount of audience right not every single show is going to succeed but there's plenty of room and usually shows succeed because they do cooperate with other shows and that helps both shows build an audience well since we're on topic of show succeeding um you going from buzz out loud to you know, tech news today. I, I want to know about creating the team because that's an important part of what you're doing. It's it's a couple of people sitting there. The chemistry has to work for you uh, for TNW uh, TNT because we have a show actually called TNW. So I always say that um, for TNT was it were how was it getting used to uh, you know the team and and things starting to flow? Was it instantaneous for you guys where everybody just clicked, or did it take a while to kind of get there? Well, when I left Buzz Out Loud, I was working with Molly Wood. And so I said to Leo, find me a very smart, tall, blonde woman to, uh, to do my show with. And he found Becky Worley. Uh, and so it was, it was like, you know, nothing had ever – no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I was very lucky to get Becky to join me for that first seven, eight months 
of the show. Uh, I had worked with Becky at, at ZDTV and Tech TV, so I knew we had a good rapport, and I knew that was going to make it a lot easier. Plus, she was ABC News, uh, so you know she brought chops She's a pro, right yeah. away. Yeah, that improved the show immensely. And I think that was a great way to get the show up and running. Unfortunately, it ended up not being something she could continue to do uh, because she took some ex- additional responsibilities at Yahoo as well as ABC and she has twins. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a lot going on. And I understood when she left, that was the point where I needed to actually create a team. I was, I was, I was lucky in, in getting a little bit of a, a head start by, by Becky being willing to jump in at, at, at the beginning. Uh, and thanks to Leo for talking her into it. That, that gave us a little time to ramp up and make some format. And then uh, we were able to hire Jason Howell uh, to come over and, and join us. Uh, Sarah and I had a, had a good rapport. We had also worked together at Tech TV. So having her on Monday and Friday was great at the beginning. And I remember we, we had a conversation where I was like, God, you know, I just don't know who we're going to get to replace Becky. And she's like, I'm right here. I'm like, do you really want to do this? I thought you, you know, I thought you wanted to do other kinds of content. She's like, no, I want to try this. I'm like, well, crap, that's uh, that's obvious. So we we went with that. That was that was immediate uh, because I knew we already worked well together. The only thing I said was like, I don't know the, you know, you've done daily news before, so here's what you're in for. And she's like, I'm up to the challenge, and she totally was. Uh, people don't realize just how much effort she put in to getting up to that that daily grind that we have uh, because she makes it look so effortless. And then I was looking for somebody to help out with the back end of, of research and reporting. And I knew Ayaz was great at that stuff. And we ran into him at CES uh, and uh, Lisa Kensel just went over and offered him a job uh, in, a, in the downstairs bar at the Renaissance. Uh, so we brought him out and of course, you know, you can't keep him off the air. Uh, so eventually we had this team and I think it took, a while for the chemistry to really solidify because none of us had done a daily thing before. But because you're doing a daily thing, it starts to solidify really quickly. Um, by the time we got over to the studio and we're doing the show over there, we were clicking. Uh, and it's, it was an amazing team. And I, I wish I was still with that team because we were, we were constantly improving too. We, we, we as a team always wanted to find what was working and continue to do it, but also figure out like, well, what can we tweak? What can we change? What can we make better? Uh, so we were always checking in on that sort of thing. I, th- I think the term effortless uh, really identifies with that show because you guys were so comfortable with each other. Uh, and I, I, it's the personalities too. I mean, I as um, I had lunch with him when he was here in New York, and I mean, we sat down over a couple of beers and, and spoke for like four or five hours about you know just the, the industry. That guy's a talker. Oh, uh, listen, I am. T- I, maybe it's a Queens thing. I don't know. It must be a Queens thing. Yeah, it must be. We're a, a little chatty, uh, <laughs> especially when we have a couple of drinks. But I, I think that was the the magic behind the show, where you guys were so comfortable with each other, and everybody was just they knew their spot, and it was a tight show and there was no dead air and everybody had a role uh, and that's an important thing with a show and i and i think that's very difficult to find if it doesn't work uh, obviously there's going to be a little bit of uh, you know getting used to but if it doesn't work it's not going to work uh and it's it's magic really when you find someone that you really connect with on a show yeah and that was something that I lucked into, but also took some work, right? Uh, we we had to bring Ayaz into the culture of Twit, 
at the beginning, right? Because he had been working in a lot of different places, and there were just a lot of questions about what what do I do and how do I do it and 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 when is it appropriate for me to do this and that? Uh, but the, you know, we were over that hump in a few months. And then you're right. It's you can't fake it anymore. You, it either works or it doesn't. And we had a lot of conversations about well, how much should we get into it on the air? Conflict is good, but we don't want it to be uncomfortable. And so you you fine tune a little bit, but most of it was just natural. We just let it let it roll. Let's talk about your uh, your new adventure, the new chapter in the Tom Merritt life. Uh, you have gone independent. Uh, this is amazing. Uh, you you've had I mean since 2004, you've really been on the air in the tech world, in the podcasting world. So you have about 10 years of, you know, reputation and people have come over. You're doing two shows now. Uh, actually, you're doing more than two shows, but two that 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 you're doing a campaign for right now. Uh, Court Killers, which let me just tell you, Tom, I and I no BS. Uh, that is my favorite show to listen to. I'm glad uh, I, I, I just the chemistry with you and Brian uh, it's just unbelievable. And I have to tell you, it is number one on my list right now to listen to and i know people that don't listen to podcasts they're not podcasting guys even people that that actually work for me they're not really into, into listening to podcasts they everybody's downloading this thing everybody loves oh, cool. it. it it's a phenomenal show uh, the community really is unbelievable but i want to talk to you about taking your shows and going independent uh you did frame rate on twit now you're in charge of everything, right? You have to do the video. You have to do the audio. You have to do, uh, I guess, the marketing of the show. Walk me through that. What is that like for you for someone that went from you know a company kind of doing a lot of the grunt work to being totally independent and having to do the work yourself? Yeah, that's awful. I'm not doing that anymore. It, like, <laughs> it is awful. It sounds like a lot of work. Uh, yeah, well, so Daily Tech News Show is probably the simplest transition but the hardest one at the same time. I essentially have taken all of the things that I did and I'm doing just those. So it's a little bit of a, a different format because I don't have co-hosts to bounce off and I don't have co-hosts bringing in discussion stories. But that preparation is the same. The content is the same. And I've been lucky enough uh, to be able to have a producer named Jenny Josephson to help me out with a lot of the production side of stuff. Luckily, the tools of the internet are such that some of the things that I don't necessarily need to do can be done rather simply. And this is the thing that I, I still haven't wrapped my head around exactly what my philosophy is. But Yes, you can spend a lot of money on a lot of equipment to make things look and sound better. But what's priority one for me is the content. So Google Hangout is what I'm using to substitute for a lot of things. It doesn't do them as well as people using better equipment, but it does them fairly well. And in the same way that when in the 90s when I was doing my own website – my website was certainly not as good as, you know, The Onion or The New York Times or any of those types of publications. But, it, my, you know, my content was able to be seen and, and consumed, and, and so it worked. And that's the beauty of the Internet to me is that you can do things much more efficiently. And, yeah, there's maybe that last 2%, 3% of quality that you, can different, that you may need to differentiate yourself from eventually if you really want to get massive. But... There's a lot of things you can do that don't detract from the content, don't detract from your message or what you're trying to say and make it easy for you to get them out there. And it has been better than I expected. I expected to have many more technical issues than I did with, with Hangout when I decided to try that. It's improved a lot. Uh, but then at the same time, Cord Killers, we're doing Skype. 
And the reason that works is that Brian Brushwood has done a lot of work to create his own studio already along the way. And so he's able to shoulder that part of the burden for that show. And Scott Johnson at Frog Pants has done the same thing. So for Current Geek, the weekly show that I do with him, he's shouldering a lot of the of the, for that. So I'm lucky enough to know all these people who are doing the same thing that I'm doing and doing other parts of it. And, and we can all kind of fit it together and pull in the same way. And then on top of that, like you mentioned, we have this amazing audience uh, that overwhelmingly wants to help. And I'm still not not sure how to react to that because – I don't want to take advantage of them, but I also don't want to feel ungrateful because they're willing to pitch in and, and make logos and, and, do, and do marketing, essentially, and, and come up with uh, intros and segment intros and contribute to the show. There were two days where I had to shoot episodes of Sword and Laser Video where I couldn't really do the show. And thanks to Jenny and the audience, we put together audience-created shows for two days. It was amazing. That, that, that's unbelievable. Um uh, I, I think the community really is a big part. And again, back to Tech TV, I think that was, like you said, that was a major part of Tech TV's uh, success. I mean, it was it was a, a small group of people. It was a very isolated demo, but it was still successful in, in terms of what the community was able to do. And it was all community-driven. Think about all the other networks on television. I don't think anybody's watching, uh, well, maybe Bravo because of The Housewives. That's a phenomenal series, Tom, let me just tell you. Sure, uh, sure. No, the housewives of I, Beverly Hills. I watch I mean, it for Top Chef myself, but but I mean, like even let's say Bravo, people watch it, but they're not committed to the brand. Sure. Nobody is 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 fighting for that for that network to stay on the air with Tech TV that existed. Um, let's talk about discoverability because this is something that a lot of podcasters face. Uh, with you, you have many shows on many platforms, and you know you're connected with different people. How is that for you to be found and to be heard? Uh, what are some difficulties of that? Yeah, I, I, the, the, one of the difficulties is being able to tell people who don't know you're gone, right? Uh, so, so I'm still finding people posting on Daily Tech News Show or on TomMerritt.com Hey, I just discovered, you know, where you are. Or even even better is the people on townmerit.com who say, "Let me know where you end up when the blog itself has got all of the places that I've ended up and and what I'm doing there." So just getting people to see the message is the hardest part. I'm lucky enough that I've built up, you know, over the years from Tech TV to CNET to Twit enough of a presence that I can get a lot of people who are willing to follow me and tell other people about me. And so that that's that's a big advantage that I, I don't discount. And iTunes has actually been really nice in putting my shows in New and Notable and promoting them. And that we've got a Cord Killer special today about how to cut the cord that they're promoting. So, you know, I, I, I get some stuff that somebody just starting out wouldn't. But really, it's, it's about word of mouth. To me, anything that I've done where I want to spread the word, I've, I've gone about spreading the word by just telling folks to tell other people if they like it and then going on shows like yours and having having people on my own shows who are willing to tell other people about my shows just just naturally because we talked about them. The, the best the best way to gain a new audience and you know like you said you you've built up 10 years of re- reputation on the internet um f- but after a certain point you know you you kind of reach the max of okay these are people that know tom Merritt. so how do you go beyond that and like you said going on other people's shows is the best way to market yourself it is and the other thing that I personally believe, and maybe I'm nuts, uh, is that I don't want the biggest audience. I want the best audience. 
I don't – and I followed this on Twitter. I, I have a stupid Twitter name. And I don't go out and do all the things you're supposed to do to gain a massive Twitter following. And the, one of the reasons I do this, I sort of backed into it with my, my dumb Twitter name, which is a whole long story, was I realized that the people who were following me really wanted to follow me. I wasn't just picking up people who got tricked or, you know, I was on a suggested list maybe and they thought they'd sample me. I got people who sought me out. And this goes to what Will Wheaton always talks about, and he's not the only one who talks about it, but he's the one I remember talking about it the most, which is you just need 5,000 dedicated people in your audience, and you can do anything. Uh, and, and I feel like Brian Brushwood and Justin Robert Young have proven this quite a bit, where they don't have the biggest audience, but man, they've got a great audience. And the audience is dedicated to what they do, and it makes what they do so much more successful because of that. So to me, it's about pursuing the quality of the audience not just the quantity of the audience. And that changes the game, right? It's not about, gosh, how do I, how do I get enough money to put out a big marketing splash? Uh, it's about where do I find the people who really will enjoy what I'm doing and be dedicated to it. I mean, I, I, you're absolutely right. I would rather have a 1,000 Twitter followers that are extremely interactive than 100,000 I really don't care. I mean, you, you see people on Twitter all the time that, that 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 followers, but... There's nothing behind. It. They're just followers. Who knows if they're bought? Who knows if you know? Who, maybe they 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 were on a different show and they gained popularity from that. But it doesn't really go a long way. Yeah, your reach is a lot more. But if they don't care about what you're talking about, what good is it? Yeah, and it's not it's not an either or. It's not like go for a small audience. It's it's about yes, of course you want to have a, a large enough audience that you can make make something happen and, and be, be relevant and speak to people. It's just about priorities. It's about, to me, it's about sustainability, not just growth, not growth first above all. Let's talk a little bit about monetizing uh, because we're actually running out of time. I could talk to you for hours, but uh, I guess we, you know, we have to end the show at some point. Yeah, I got to go do my, one of my shows eventually. <laughs> <laughs> what time do you have to be out of here? Just so uh, I know. You know, I, I, I should be out of here within the next 15, 20 minutes Perfect. probably. Perfect. Um, Monetizing a podcast is a very difficult thing for people. I know people that have been doing a podcast for uh, 10 years, you know, in, in terms of what a podcast is, and they still find it really difficult to monetize. There's a couple of reasons why. One, uh, there's only a select number of advertisers that are willing to advertise on your show. I, I think we all know what it is, and I think we all share the same advertisers. Two, how many times are you going to get your audience to purchase the same product? Unless, you know, you have an audience that is large or if it's recycled and, and you know, you're changing viewers all the time, which that's not a great thing either. Uh, so, but you're doing something different. You're doing a campaign. You're doing a crowdfunded campaign to support the show, both with uh, Daily Tech News Show and with Cord Killers. That's amazing to me that there's so many people committed to supporting the show Tell me, tell me about how you came to that idea of doing that. Um, are you looking to do any kind of other ads, or is this something that you see being the core of revenue for the podcast? Yeah, when, when in December, when I had to start thinking about doing stuff on my own, uh, my original thought was, well, I start doing my show, I put it up, and I have somebody sell ads on it. And, and that's what I was thinking about. But I knew about Patreon. I don't remember when they launched, but from the moment they launched, I, they caught my eye, and the idea was pay per podcast. Now, they weren't built for podcasts particularly. They were built for all kinds of creative enterprises like arts, uh, music, but podcasts fit very well into their, their mode, which is you get people to say, I will give you 
$10 per show or I'll give you $5 per show. And this works great for weeklies like Cord Killers where we say, great, you know, we'll provide you a little extra bonus content, little inside information. You can do rewards. It's kind of Kickstarter meets PayPal. Uh, in that you can have that donation button, that subscription button, but you also have some tools that let you see a little bit more about your audience and provide them some benefits and content. And so Brian and I decided, well, what the heck? It can't hurt. Let's try it. We know we can get sponsors for Cord Killers if we need to. Let's see how far this can go. And the response was amazing. It was much bigger than we expected. And so far, it's been plenty uh, to the point where we're talking about licensing the show to somebody on a non-exclusive basis, but we're not to the point where we've decided not to take ads, but we're, we don't have to yet. Uh, so, we're, we're, again, we're keeping an eye on this and seeing how it goes. Daily Tech News Show, I, you know, I, originally, yeah, I was going to build up an audience uh, for a couple of months and then hand it over to somebody to sell. And it, 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 I was looking at the Patreon from Cord Killers. I'm like, well, shoot, let's, let's try this. Let's see what we can do. And it's funny. I thought saying like, hey, I might be able to go ad free. Wouldn't that be great? Would be like hands down a big thing with the audience. But this is the interesting thing about an invested audience. A lot of them were concerned and said, please don't say you won't take ads. We want you to succeed. And that's amazing. Amazing. The premise was, well, this Patreon thing's fine, but we don't think it's going to work. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so so please do ads because we want you to keep doing the show uh and and I, I haven't been dogmatic about it and i haven't said i'm not gonna take ads uh but it does change the dynamic there's nothing wrong with advertising there's two things about taking advertising one whoever you take the advertising from always has an influence over your show it doesn't matter how much you don't want them to or how far away they are from your core content. hey tom hey tom it's yeah. not a promo code it's an offer code yes, have you gotten one right. of those uh, yes, actually have. Uh, I, and there, there have been uh, cases where I needed to pay close attention to which advertiser I'm reading because of that. Um, because some, say, some want the opposite. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, we do want it to be an offer code, not a promo code. I just dealt with um, that last week. <laughs> yeah. And, and, so, and, and, and then there's tracking. All of a sudden, like this idea of like, all I want to do is make my content available in as many places as possible so people can consume it. The advertisers want to know that people saw it. Yeah. Rightly so. Uh, so yeah, you've got you've got a lot of got a lot of issues that come along with advertising, and and the money causes influence. Money from your audience causes influence too, because suddenly people are like, "Hey, wait a minute, you got to pay more attention to me because I'm giving you money for this." It's all a matter of how much influence do you want from what quarters, and how much does it com- does it make it complicated if you take money from different areas? I think it's a combination of everything, right? Um, we, we had the same exact discussion on, on What the Tech. Uh, Paul Therod and I do a weekly just rambling tech show where we just yell That's and scream Paul. about things that we hate. I mean, it's, it's perfect. We, we got drunk at times. It's, it's, it's actually create, become this little bubble. Uh, do you take Mary Jo Foley's craft beer recommendations? You know, I, I've gone out drinking with her, and she could drink me under the table. I mean, un- unbelievable. She's yeah. unbelievable, but she, I mean, she she always makes fun of me because I like Pinot Grigio, and Paul and her will make fun of me on Twitter for about two hours and make me feel really guilty that I just finished an entire bottle of Pinot Grigio. They um, know their beers. I sometimes too. just take pictures of like Bud Light and I just send it to them oh, to watch them yeah, explode, just taunting them. All right. <laughs> hey, what do you think of this one? I discovered this one last week at the bar, but <laughs> it's a little St. Louis area beer. <laughs> but with. With the audience, you know, we were throwing around the idea, like, "Hey, we want to do this Patreon," and we said, "Look how successful Tom is with this thing. Look at look at Brian with this thing." 
and we may not take ads. And the audience said, oh, what are you, nuts? What do you mean you're not going to take ads? I'm like, yeah, but it's I want to – if I'm if I'm getting money from you guys, I'd, I'd rather not do ads. They're like, no, make as much money as you can. What are you, stupid? And I find that unbelievable that the audience kind of wants you to succeed in that sense. They're not complaining like, you know, Tom, uh, I'm giving you money. I'd rather not hear an Audible ad at the start of the show. I'm not getting that, and I'm sure you're not – I'm sure there are going to be get- some people, but – well, this is the thing is an audience is made up of lots of different people. So there are people saying, hey, if I'm if I'm backing on Patreon, I don't want to hear ads. Uh, and then there are people saying, no, get get as many ads as you want. I think there are people who are like ads is familiar. It's easy. And I don't have to think about it. So with a Patreon model, they at least have to think about, oh, I'm not giving him money. Should I be giving him money? And they don't want to feel the guilt. Right. With an ad model, they can just think like, oh, that it's all taken care of. I don't have to worry about it. I get that. Um, that that is a familiar and easy model where you're thinking someone else is paying the bills. Now, one aspect of this that you have to remember is when a when a, a sh- any show takes ads, some of that money is good. You're you're all paying for it, right? Because the ads only are placed because you are going to spend money. Now, maybe you aren't, but someone in the audience is going to spend money on that product, and when they spend money on that product. A lot of it goes to the advertiser, right? And only a chunk of the money you're spending on that product is going to the ad budget that gets spent on the show. When you do a PayPal donation like on on No Agenda with Adam Curry or a Patreon, your money is going – yeah, a small percent gets taken out in transaction fees, but a much larger percent of your money goes to the creator. So you're supporting that person more directly when you do something like that than when you shop at their advertiser. Absolutely. Um- what are some issues with with production? I, I know that part of the Patreon campaign is to upgrade the production. I know you said you know Google Hangouts are pretty good, but you want to do some more changes. What are some of the upgrades that you're looking to do? Well, the first thing we're working on is audio for for the Daily Tech News Show, particularly. Uh, I want to make sure that I'm recording source audio because what I've been doing just for time's sake, is taking the MP4 out of YouTube and dragging it into Audacity. And if I don't remember to switch the Google Hangout to studio mode from voice mode, uh, you get a lower quality of audio, and it, and it shows. Uh, so I want to I want to do more to make sure that the audio is working. I want to tweak the the settings. Uh, I don't know if I want to add a lot of equipment per se. We're not making that much on the Patreon yet, but maybe a second mixer. Uh, in order, or will will help out a couple of different things at least on the, on the local. I might audio hijack might be all, all that I need though. We'll have to see. Uh, on the cord killer side, we want to get another desktop uh, that's a little more powerful for Brian, so that he can he can bring in the bring in the video more uh, smoothly without having to worry about maxing out his resources. Uh, and we're working on on more transition elements and video elements and and things like that. Do you think it's a distraction to have like for you before you you, you showed up and you did the show? And that's what you concentrate on. But now I don't know what your workflow is there, but I'm sure you're you're having to worry about more issues happening. Yeah, not as many as I expected, honestly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously, if if there's a problem with the podcast uh, downloading, then I'm the one who has to fix it. But that was already true for shows like Sword and Laser, and it's a thing, and autopilot. Well, Scott handles autopilot, but FSL tonight. So it was like, oh well, now I have to worry about that with these. Honestly, it was a lot of work. In January, because when you start something, it's always more work, right? You have, you have so many more questions, new people coming in and all of that sort of thing. 
and CES was happening. And then I had to go shoot an entire season of Sword and Laser. Uh, so yeah, it's been a crazy amount of work. I feel like it's starting to settle down a little bit. Uh, and with the help of the audience, with the help of my co-hosts, uh, with the producer on Daily Tech News Show, Jenny, I don't feel overwhelmed. I feel like this is manageable. And what I worry about, what I'm concerned with most is I don't want to overcomplicate it and add problems that don't need to be added because they don't provide enough of a return. Oh, it, 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 there's so many distractions here. It's it's like a Turkish bazaar in this studio. I got 5,000 monitors going. And, you know, at times it becomes difficult. But uh, Well, yeah, it, it, you know, I can make my audio better by adding a compressor right or an or a, or a or noise gate there's there's all kinds of equipment i can do that'll improve the audio the question is is the cost and complexity of maintaining and and running that stuff worth it does it make that big of a difference i don't have the answer to that necessarily it's a debate that i have with jenny all the time which is where is that line and it's not that one of us is on one side and one on the other we're both trying to figure out like okay what does make sense to work on because we both agree priority one is the content and everything you do should serve improving the content in, in a significant way. Uh, before we, we, um, we end the show, I always ask people this when they come on the show, what, what do you see the, the future of podcasting and internet broadcasting in five years? Uh, what do you, what do you see changing in, in this you know little bubble we're in? Well, I think video is probably going to experience the most change. I, I think audio podcasts got their second big wave when apps came along. Uh, the first big wave was an iTunes added podcasting, and then that that declined uh, or or really leveled out. And now all of a sudden, there's people listening to podcasts who've never heard of them before because they have an app. That was the biggest. That was the biggest change for me launching these new shows was realizing the people who don't know about RSS. They have no idea what that is. And when you have a subscribe button on your website, they don't. They're like, I don't know. I don't know. Press subscribe, and then I got these things that I just want to find it in my app. How do I find it in my particular app, whatever app it is they use? And there's hundreds of them out there. Uh, so I think audio podcasting is probably going to just continue to get to be more like radio on your phone, on your mobile device. Maybe it's a tablet. Maybe it's built into your car. And so that's, that's where that game is going to be played out. Video, I think, is going to be tumultuous. Uh, I think we're going to experience uh, a scramble and a land grab for space on either set-top boxes or smart TVs or whatever shakes out of this cutting-the-cord movement as the place to watch your video. And we'll probably see a couple of players emerge who have control of that. They might be cable companies. They might be some cable companies and some manufacturers like Apple and Google. Who knows? But that will be the place where if you really want to have a massive video audience, you're going to have to be on those platforms but at the same time, the Internet's still the Internet, and the Internet always routes around any obstacles. And if you're not worried about the worldwide massive audience, you're still going to have lots of opportunities to get your message heard out there on the open Internet somehow. Barring some catastrophe like you know net neutrality falling apart, which I think there's a lot of good natural pressures to keep that, but that's a danger right now. Or bandwidth caps ending up having teeth in them and getting and getting clamped down instead of loosening up. Again, I believe that there's enough other pressures from content manufacturers like Google and Netflix to keep bandwidth caps 
from really becoming a widespread problem, but they might. So there's, there's lots of threats to that open internet. But as long as there is an open internet, and I believe there always will be, uh, there will always be a lot of other options brewing that we can't even predict. With the content delivery, for, for the kind of show that we do, which is a similar format, does that work on the TV? Do you, do you think this, this type of format is something people will sit down and watch in their living room or in their office? Or will it be a, a prominent thing on you know, a laptop or a desktop? I, I think the distinction starts to go away. I think people just want to watch what they want to watch, where they want to watch. You know, I don't want to get too far into my cord killer's mantra, but they want to watch what they want, where they want, and how they want it. And that will not matter. I think they'll want to be able to see it on whatever screen they happen to be sitting in front of. So I think that Twit's long-term goal of being a 24-7 live channel is a good one. Because there's going to be people who really want that. And they're going to want to be able to access it at work, on their laptop in a corner. They're going to want to access it on their TV at home, whether it's on their Roku or something else. Uh, And then there will be people who just want to have a playlist of their own options rolled into that. But I think in the end, what people want is being able to easily get to the stuff that they want to watch. That's Right now, you, you have to work a little bit for it. TomMerritt.com is a website. DailyTechNewsShow.com is uh, the show. Cord Killers, uh, another phenomenal show. Uh, support the campaign. Support the Patreon campaign. If you, if you guys are listening on the IIB website, uh, I'm personally supporting both because I think they're phenomenal shows. And I l- would love to see these two shows really do well uh, with, with a crowdfunded platform because it, I really have not seen anybody else with a significant push to you know, funding an episode or funding a, a monthly uh, subscription to the show. I, I think it's unbelievable. Uh, in the chat room, people are posting it right now. Uh, if you're watching live, click on it. I mean, even a dollar really um, goes a long way when you have a couple of people doing it. By the way, Tom is not paying me for this. I'm not getting money. By the way, you could write that check out, Tom. Andrew's uh, paying you? me for this. That's I'm paying Tom. Thing. I know. I yeah. lost that on this. Thank you for supporting the Patreon, by the way. I really appreciate that. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer of supporting things that you enjoy. Um, and more people need to think that way because, really, you guys are putting in so much effort and so much work into growing it. Uh, it's, it's great to see it evolve in front of us, uh, especially with, you know, Court Killers, where you guys are, you know, adding elements every week and adding graphics every week. It's, it's actually really cool to see how the production is growing rather than it to be, boom, here it is. I'm, well, I'm good. A big I'm fan. glad because that's that's how we ended up having to, <laughs> to do it. So I'm, I'm I'm glad that's good. That's fun to watch and it's not painful to watch. Uh, but no, seriously, man. Thank you and and thanks to everybody else who has backed us for Daily Tech News Show. We're just asking for a nickel a show. That's a buck a month. If everybody in the audience did that, we'd be golden. We and you know what? No people issues. are doing more. I mean, it's you have uh, for for core killers. You have uh, 1,200 Patreon. I guess people that have donated, and you guys are up to 2,100 dollars. Uh, so people are actually giving more uh, than you guys are asking for. And that, that, that actually goes a long way. That shows how committed the audience is and the community is, uh, which is amazing. You can follow Tom on Twitter, AceDetect, A-C-E-D-T-E-C-T. I've, I've actually yeah. spoken to the other AceDetect many times thinking it's you. Oh yeah, that's Kuhan. He he manages that. That, that, that I, he just started doing that on, on his own to, to help direct people to my ridiculous hand i think i had like a 45 minute discussion about beards with him <laughs> one time and then i realized I he goes you know i'm not tom right i go nope did not know that oh, uh cord killers is on twitter <laughs> daily tech news show uh 
every day. You're doing it. Different yep, guests. Different guests. Yep. Are you going to find a co- permanent co-host, or are you, do, are you do you want to do Maybe. something different? I uh, don't know. I mean, right now, just sort of lucked into the fact that this seems to be working. It seems to be fun. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 we're we're taking it naturally and seeing how it evolves we may end up with like regular slots monthly slots weekly slots i don't know yet we'll we'll have to just see how it goes it's a difficult thing finding someone that could commit every single day at the same time it's difficult finding somebody that can commit every single day knows the technology world enough to report on it and meshes with the kind of show you want to do and you know there's so many considerations there so it's not something you just want to slap anybody into for sure Great. Uh, guys, if you miss any portion of the show, if you came in late uh, and you missed the beginning, it's going to be archived, so no worries. On gfknetwork.com, also on the IIB website, it's archived there. We're on iTunes, we're on Twitter, we're everywhere podcasts are available. Uh, I'd love to have you back on, Tom, talk about uh, more stuff with internet broadcasting. There's so much I did not get to, uh, because obviously we got we to gotta end the show within an hour, but if, if, really appreciate you coming on. I thought it was great. Thanks, Andrew. No, this is really fun. Glad to talk to you anytime, man. Hey, guys, and we'll see you all next week on the IAIB Spotlight. Take care.